You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Melissa Hathaway. Uh, Melissa Hathaway most recently was the acting senior director for cyberspace on the National Security Council, the NSC, where she led the 60-day cyberspace policy review for President Obama, producing a comprehensive report containing 25 near and midterm recommendations. And prior to that, she had a very distinguished career in this field. Uh, she has uh, written numerous publications, lectured, led task forces, and now she has her own firm, which is Hathaway Global Strategies. Uh, Melissa, we're delighted to have you here today. I know you have a very busy schedule, and I know you've just most recently changed from the National Security Council to starting your own firm. So welcome. And I'm going to start out with something very, very basic. Many of us including me, have a very hard time getting our arms around this whole business. Uh, we hear about cybersecurity, cyber war, the cyber threat, and could you just give us a sense, a sense of what this cyberspace, cyber threats, the hits on our country and so forth, is all about? Sure. Well, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate the opportunity to come um, and speak here this afternoon. Um, I think uh, I'd, I'd like to outline the threat um, that's really outpacing our defenses on multiple levels. Uh, first, as a person, I asked this question just last week, and um, I asked people, uh, have you been a victim of personal identifiable information um, theft? So have you lost your social security number, your driver's license, or your credit card? <clears throat> and usually it's about... 10% uh, of the population that's had um, has been a victim of that type of theft. Uh, I was, um, <clears throat> and, but I asked the second question is is how um, how many of you in the audience have been uh, a victim or have had your credit card stopped because of it hit a fraud level, and usually it's 95% of the population. And if you just begin to think about those two things from a personal uh, perspective, you can begin to identify just the tip of the iceberg of what um, we're facing from the threats of organized crime and um, malicious code that's being um, introduced into our networks. 
corporately, I, um, I look at it as many of our corporations are being targeted for their intellectual property, uh, whether it's the next generation weapon system design or the next generation information technology design. And <clears throat> not many companies are aware that they've been a victim of the theft, and then once they find out they've been a victim, it's, it's very difficult to address. They're being targeted for their IP, or sometimes they're being targeted for their relationship to the U.S. government or other governments or to other suppliers. Um, there are many things that we need to think about when you're being targeted. Um, it's not just an online coming through the Internet uh, problem. Uh, there's a problem coming through uh, multimedia devices like thumb drives, uh, iPods, um, the different uh, things that can plug into your computer. Many times they're uh, carrying an executable or some code that allows it to phone home to some other location and either collect data against you from a marketing perspective or collect data that will allow it to implant your computer for other uh, information like your credit card data or your bank data, et cetera. Um, there's a second type of targeting um, or threat that we um, are ex not experiencing very much, but I think we'll start to experience more as we're moving into more of a wireless um, uh, market and space is um, is actually coming through um, a wireless device and so if um, as you're on your cell phone and if it's using Bluetooth um, the Bluetooth is an avenue to get through to the device um, from somebody somebody else's device and take your contact list or any information that's on um, the device that's emitting through the wireless net the internet <clears throat> um, is the one that everybody talks about the most of what you know what is a delivery mechanism or a denial mechanism or a degrading mechanism of what we have to face and then the last is coming through um, the supply chain where somebody has uh, manipulated a product um, to enable uh, access to your information um, an example of that would be uh, actually, most recently is a manipulation of the point-of-sale terminals. Um, I spoke about it and that happened in the UK at one of their major supermarkets. So you swipe your um, ATM card or your credit card, and it'll actually communicate both to your bank and to local organized crime unit, and who will then start to use your bank account. Um, recently, that happened in um, Australia with uh, the McDonald's point-of-sale terminals and um, customers lost in total hundreds of millions of dollars before they were able to shut down the point-of-sale terminals that were corrupted. Um, so there's many aspects of which uh, it, it makes it uh, you know, personal to um, you as an individual or as an enterprise or even as a, a bank. Let me, you know, this is it's such a broad subject, um, and yet there is not a great deal of treatment of it in our media. There may be in specialized media such as you read, but we read occasionally about identity theft or we'll read about somebody stealing credit cards. But in talking to you both now and, and before we started, I'm sensing that there is a magnitude the, uh, to this that people are simply unaware of. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. One, um, I take it that when someone or some entity, like a corporation or the Pentagon or whatever, is targeted, using your term. Mm -hmm. That means that someone is focusing on them and trying to penetrate their uh, 
their system, their network. Is that correct? That's correct. We're trying to steal or take their information. It's penetrate the system in order to get to the information which is valuable. Sure. This probing and, 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 and sort of um, feeling around is, is in effect a form of spying. Of um, They're trying to see what sort of defense you have. Can they penetrate your system? Can they get in? And if they can, what can they get from that? In the case of individuals or the examples you've given, they can get credit cards, they can get ATM information and so forth. I'm assuming in the case of corporations, they can get proprietary information, they can get things that might give them access to some of their sensitive projects. Is that that's so far so good? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And in the case of our of our defense of, of the Pentagon, of the Department of Defense, of defense contractors, so in effect what, what folks are doing is not only targeting us as individuals, private corporations, but the very institutions of our national security. That's correct. I, I think it's not just a national security um, issue. It's an economic security issue because of the broad-based spying, espionage, and mapping of our critical infrastructures, of the um, of the information that's desirable for whatever the intent is, whether it's to steal money or steal secrets. Okay. In addition to the stealing information, secrets, money, and so forth, there's gaining information, and then you have just raised the prospect of what I think is sometimes called malware. That mm -hmm. is the ability to embed something, sort of like a, a very sophisticated cookie. We've all heard of cookies, but something that might that people might later be able to activate in order to create a robot or as a form of Trojan horse in your computer. That's so correct. To speak. There's um. A recent statistic that I read uh, that um, came out of one of our one of the leading security um, s firms that's tracking the malware, the Trojans, the viruses, the worms. You hear all these different terms. That there's 37,000 new pieces of malware that are developed per day, and they have a 24-hour life cycle. Um, and so, therefore, it's very difficult to keep up with the defenses of each of those new pieces of code. Um, and so it's sort of think of it as almost a throwaway capability that I can activate it for the 24-hour period to steal what I need to steal and I then introduce the next version tomorrow and the next version the next day. And it's very difficult to keep up with the volume and velocity of the, the different infection points that are being introduced on a daily basis. You know, our history, I think for all of us alive today, we think of we look at our coastline. We've always been protected by these two saltwater oceans. But we say, well, look at that. Somebody tried to invade us. They tried to land saboteurs, as happened years ago in Long Island or in Mexico. Gee, we've got drug dealers coming. It's a physical thing. We can mm -hmm. actually perceive it, measure it, try and defend against it, build a wall. This is something very, very different. Can you, I mean, we, I have heard people allude to the number of hits that come at our country every day. Mm -hmm. What is the magnitude of that? Uh, I'll give you one example from the distributed denial of service attacks that we faced in um, the July timeframe, around the 4th of July. Uh, we saw eight years of traffic in 15 minutes, um, which was one million attacks per second from over 200,000 different uh, internet uh, protocols. And so that's more than 200,000 unique computers that were uh, really just flooding the system. Um, it's, it's striking, and that was actually considered a very low-level um, uh, attack.
that that's that's hard to imagine. I mean, it's hard, and and I have to assume that those attacks are purposeful. Someone, some entity, whether it's a country or or a non-state actor or whoever. And I know in some cases it's a 16-year-old kid who's trying to use his computer. But for the most part, these are probably relatively organized, purposeful attacks. Who uh, do we think is, is behind things of this magnitude? Uh, we don't really have very good uh, uh, situation awareness of who's behind um, some of these attacks. Uh, that particular example was considered low-level um, attacking uh both uh, the U.S. government sites as well as the New York Stock Exchange and the Washington Post, um, the uh, the level of that um, organization it was well organized, uh, but some could view it as just a test of how could we um, redistribute bandwidth or enable those organizations to stand up, and how do we adapt? Uh, quickly to um, that type of a crisis. So, uh, you know, if you view that as a test, I think that we did well, but we only did well because of the private sector was able to step up and, and really redirect the, um, the bandwidth to enable the operations of those core entities. You know, as you know, uh, Melissa, we have uh, just opened at the beginning of this month a new exhibit here in the museum on the subject of, of, of the cyber threat. And in, in the exhibit, uh, we depict what might happen if a portion of our electrical grid was, mm-hmm. was brought down or, or in some way affected uh, to the extent that it could actually, for an extended period, cause repercussions in this country. Do you consider that a, a, a possibility? And if so, what kind of a possibility? Uh, certainly the grid... Um is a fragile infrastructure and um and those uh and it has a workforce that um is uh beginning to retire and not many people know how to restore the infrastructure and so when you take those two um uh those uh the combination of those two things and then you couple it with the ability to that they that the the grid is connected to the internet and you could come through the internet to turn on or off the system control devices, which is what enables the power to flow to our houses and to our enterprises. I I do worry about it. Um, uh, The good thing is currently is that the infrastructure, it's difficult to get access to the system control through the internet. The challenge will be is as we move toward uh, the smart grid, uh, it will open up the access points to the internet um, from, let's just say from today, one or two, to tomorrow to thousands. And um, and so that just gives another, a number of different avenues by which to to, uh, attack the resiliency or attack the fragility of the infrastructure. I'm not clear. I know the president uh, just announced yesterday sort of uh, uh, more work directed at creating a smart grid. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps I'm naive here, but I would think that the characteristic of a smart grid would make it more, not less, impervious to attacks from the outside, to people trying to affect uh, you know, the security of this country. Well, certainly the Recovery Act, um, the funds and working with Department of Energy and um, the uh, Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission um, and the NERC, which is the National uh, Energy um, 
reliability corporation and the different entities that have to play into ensuring that the grid will be smart and secure um, we were able to set uh, evaluation criteria for the proposals um, that 30 to 40 percent of the evaluation had to show the security posture of the grid um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the most economical um, and productive uh, way moving forward and so you have to balance and or assure that we're going to have the productivity and the flow of the energy as well as the security of that core infrastructure as you know if the if the grid were to go down um, it will not just affect the um, our ability to turn the lights on or computers on but eventually it'll affect the communications sure. systems and um, we just can't afford for that and part of the infrastructure to go down for any period of time. Well, earlier you were talking about, you know, the variety of the numbers of, of hits, uh, cyber hits uh, coming at our country. Is, is the grid itself exposed in any way through the Internet itself? It is. Many of the companies... Um, uh, they're the business part of the enterprise and how they collect fees, et cetera, and how customer billing and, and just customer knowledge of what's happening is, uh, is all connected to the Internet. And, um, and then for some companies, that is connected to the core infrastructure of running the power. And for other companies, it's, it's more separated. Are you, you know, you've, you've had uh, such exposure yourself personally you participated in so many of the uh, task forces and, and uh, uh, committees and so forth looking at this on behalf of the government on behalf of those concerned about our national security uh, do you feel personally that that um, I think in simple terms are we doing enough I believe that um, this is one of the most important national and economic security issues facing our country and that we need to mobilize and make everybody understand that cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility from the individual to the corporation to the enterprise or to the government. And I do not believe that enough people understand what we're facing, nor do I believe that we've mobilized the ingenuity and innovation of America to begin to address the problem. And then finally, I believe that there needs to be a much more robust international dialogue on what's at stake for the global economy and for all nations that are relying upon that core infrastructure to enable commerce, to enable our ability to work and stay safe online. Well, right now we're, you know, there's been a great focus on global warming and, and, and there is an international dialogue. Would you see something comparable to that on the whole issue of the cyber cyberspace and trying to secure some sort of international accords on dealing with it on trying to cope with it on an international level nation to nation uh, I believe that um, we have pieces internationally that are being addressed but not a holistic understanding of what that communications infrastructure uh, what the security needs to be of it and let me just there are more than 20 different international standards bodies that are determining the future of that infrastructure the security posture of it the standards um, uh, interoperability for the different software and hardware and the vendors who are working on it but then there's another separate 20 different international venues that are talking about 
the um, policy synchronization, rules of engagement, what's an act of war, what's a, a crime um, internationally and nationally. And there's not a common understanding of what is um, each nation's responsibility for securing or enabling that core infrastructure to enable, again, global commerce or um, global communications, um, the internet, et cetera. You know, I, I know that the intelligence community, just taking that entity and, and looking at national security threats, is, is concerned about non-state actors, in, in other, such as organized crime, uh, the organized drug dealers, uh, elements, terrorist elements that are, are linking up more and more, human trafficking and so forth. Knowing what you do, to what extent are you concerned about the ability of some of these non-state actors to develop the capability to actually do, um, perceived, to become, as it were, a threat to the national security of our country and of other countries? Um, the reported organized crime or underground economy of last year reported was over $1 trillion. And that's just what's reported of an underground economy. And I believe that that's a fraction of what the real cost of the underground economy. So if you think about a trillion dollars of, of funds that could be used to restore an infrastructure or is the, is the GDP of a small country, that there's a lot at stake um, for our overall, um, you know, the future. But is that, uh, does that concern you right now? Does it concern you? In other words, we are, we are now at war in, in, in a part of the world, in the Middle East certainly. We're dealing with horrendous issues on our, on, on our border with Mexico, with uh, with uh, drug organizations flush with money. And what I, what I hear from people in the intelligence community, they're hiring bright people. They're hiring, whether, whether it's, it's lawyers or people who understand uh, the cyber world, uh, people who understand uh, ways of getting around borders and so forth. And they have no concern about the laws and the, and the, uh, you know, the civilized behavior of, of what we consider the civilized behavior nation to nation. And I'm just wondering to what extent you, you are genuinely concerned about the threat from that sector. I am uh, genuinely concerned about the threat um, that's facing us from many different uh, vectors, um, whether it's organized crime, organized hackers that are uh, supporting a national uh, agenda or a nationalist or patriotic agenda, which is similar to what happened in Estonia and, and some would argue in Georgia as well. Um, if you think about the example that I used for the distributed denial of service, and it was, you know, really low level organized from five different areas that doesn't, uh, you could have um, some more, far more sophisticated organization to either degrade or deny a core part of our infrastructure or steal a lot more money than what we've seen in the volumes that we've seen, um, or, or, uh, cause other um, uh, damage to the infrastructure that we have not actually seen yet, but it's possible. Melissa, well, so I know you're probably uh, limited in what you can say, but one of the most recent things you've done is this report for the president. And I think uh, to the extent that you could comment on that and give, it any, give us any sense of it, 
Uh, it would be of great interest to the listeners. Okay. Um, the cyberspace policy review that we um, that I led for the president um, can be found on the White House website, and uh, it consists of uh, five primary chapters and several annexes, uh, the core uh, and 25 recommendations. The report uh, focuses on the need for leadership, national leadership, corporate leadership, individual leadership, and accountability toward um, building the security into the infrastructure. It talks about the need for a national dialogue and a broad-based education campaign uh, across the United States and uh, generally raising awareness internationally. It also talks about that the um, private sector really is the cornerstone to the solution moving forward and we cannot do, uh, the government cannot go it alone that we must have a public-private partnership and innovation agenda to start to build security back into the core infrastructure, uh, that we need to focus our research and development dollars toward those, um, toward that research agenda and toward the infrastructure agenda, and that we really must have and build toward um, a national response framework um, that has the plan in place for how one would restore, would address in a crisis and restore the infrastructure during a time of a crisis or a digital disaster. And right now that, um, you know, basically recovery plan does not exist. And um, I, the, there is a basically a working group underway with the private sector to start to build what that response plan would be. The annexes talked to the methodology. We really only had 60 days to get that report done, which um, I'm quite proud of. And uh, we were able to uh, meet with industry, academia, international allies through the course of the review, and we received more than 100 papers to inform the review. And those 100 papers are also on the White House website, so you can see some of the input that was received. Uh, we did a historical uh, um, annex uh, to help understand the legislative landscape that this isn't a problem that was that arrived overnight um, as we moved from telegraph to telephone to satellite communications to now wireless communications with each new technological innovation uh, a department or agency uh, received new authority, and then there was a new privacy or civil liberties concern of which uh, resulted in a new law or policy, and then again, it's an iterative cycle, new technology, new authority in another agency, and it starts to show where the seams are in our government of why there's so many different entities in charge. Um, this is relevant because, um, at least as of today, in the 111th Congress, we have, I think now, 19 pieces of cybersecurity legislation that have been introduced. And if you think about that, we need to really start to focus the legislative agenda in helping um, ensure that we're clarifying the space and the roles and responsibilities and, and not uh, further complicating it, or else the solution will become that much more difficult. And um, so I would encourage um, anybody who's listening to, to go to the White House website and, and download the report. No, I just I'd like to just end with with one question, and you voiced this at the very beginning when you and I were talking that you just felt there just is simply not enough understanding of what this what this cyber world is about, what cyber threats constitute, and and the nature of threat to our country. 
it would seem to me that that it, that's that you're expressing a degree of frustration there, and, and I think you would you would like to see a, a major leadership or educational effort to try and change that. What would what in a few words might you suggest in that regard? I, I think that we need a national dialogue, and it, it began when the president gave his speech in May, and I think it needs to continue with mainstream media having, um, you know, whether it's the show on 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night of the week, uh, it shouldn't just be the, the news hour that you're hearing about this. If you can start to mainstream it into the media, then people will understand. My children are 8 and 9 years old, it, and they're learning about how to stay safe on the Internet. If uh, I think it needs to be part of um, a core part of the curriculum for K through 12. Um, and then beyond that, it needs to uh, it needs to be part of the conversation at the dinner table. And uh, my uh, I talked I use this also with my husband. Um, you know, when was the last time you looked at your credit card statement and you looked to see if there was you know an extra nickel, a quarter, or a dollar put on a transaction? Uh, do you notice that? Do you look for it? Um, and or there's a transaction that you know you just don't ever recall being at that store. Um, and those are things that if you can start to begin the conversation at home and you make it personal, like the, um, you know, your credit card being turned off while you're overseas or you know, you're having to rebuild your life because your, your wallet was stolen, um, it, everybody starts to understand what's at stake for them personally. Well, Melissa, it's been terrific having a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to see you back. Thanks, Peter. I really appreciated the opportunity. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. <laughs>